a group of girls share a secret in the basement. And then we take to the high seas to meet one of America's most notorious pirates. But is it possible this man wasn't just in it for the booty? He was also winning to serve the Dark Lord today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. Hope you guys are having a great day too. Hope you guys are having tons of fun out there in the world. We got a ton of stuff to cover, so we're going to get started right away. First off, walking into Dead Rabbit Command is a longtime Patreon supporter, but this is the first time he's gotten his shout out. Everyone, get on your feet and give it up for Denby Jones. Woohoo! Yeah, walk on in, walk on in, little doggy, into Dead Rabbit Command. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Denby Jones has been a Patreon supporter for a couple months now, but he requested a particular type of story, so I mean. It's going to take a while. These stories, they're hard to find to begin with. But we're so glad to have you here, and I finally found an awesome one for you. Denby, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. You guys can't support the Patreon or support the show financially. However, that's totally fine. It really, really is. Just spread the word about Dead Rabbit Radio. Tell your friends, your coworkers. Talk about it with strangers online. All those ways help the show grow. Denby, let's go ahead and get this journey started. I'm going to go ahead and toss you the oars for the Dead Rabbit rowboat. We are leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. Row us all the way out to a little girl's house. Oh, splash. Oh, oh splash. Oh, get that upper body workout as we're rowing down a river. The river that goes straight from Dead Rabbit Command to a little girl's house. A little girl's basement. To be specific. This is one of those stories I found online. We don't have an exact name. We don't have a date or a location for where this story took place. So, America maybe? (laughs) Apparently a place that has a river flowing right into their basement. I found it online. It was written by someone called 315 Retro, but that's actually the main subject of the story's son. We're going to call him Frank. Frank... Recently posted the story about his mom, who we'll refer to as Sally. When Sally was a little girl, she had a secret. It wasn't hers alone. There were a couple of other girls in the neighborhood who also knew about this secret. And they didn't want to tell anybody. Not because they thought they would get in trouble. Not because they thought they would get ridiculed. They didn't want to tell anyone because they believed if anyone else knew about the basement, it would stop working. It's an interesting scenario. We don't have an age of these little girls, but, you know, let's just say they're between the ages of, like, say, six and nine. And they had the wherewithal to think that what is happening in this basement is not normal. It's a miracle. And if we let people know, then it will stop working. There was no reason, there was no concrete reason nobody told them that. But they knew. They knew. And I think that's the right call, honestly. If anyone else had known about this story at the time, stop working. 
Sally would go downstairs with a couple of her girlfriends from the neighborhood. They'd all swing by Sally's house. This was in Sally's house. It was her basement. They'd walk down the stairs and make sure the door was shut. Make sure they were safe from prying eyes. And Sally would be standing there. And then she would start to hover. Just an inch or two at first. But she would find herself floating over the ground. Her girlfriends could do the same thing. All of these girls in this area, all of the girls who knew about the secret who would come down to Sally's basement, they would start to hover a few inches off the ground. And then they began to fly. A small collection of girls. We don't have an exact number. I, I imagine if you had any more than four girls flying in a single location, there'd be a lot of uh, bumping of heads. So maybe three or four of these girls are now hover are now flying around the basement. I'm sure there were a lot of wheeze. I'm sure there were a lot of enjoyment as they're flying, but you'd also want to be super quiet because you don't want the mom being like, "What are you girls doing down there? Why do you guys keep going wee?" They'd fly around the basement. They'd fly around. And Sally goes, we would... This is so interesting because in, in one hand, this sounds like a dumb detail. This sounds like just like why. Out of everything you could do, if you could fly in the basement, why would you do this? But it almost feels like, again, Sally knew what was going on was impossible. So if she ever had to convince somebody that it was real... This would be a detail she'd give. She goes, we would float up so high that we could actually look at the tops of the shelves. Shelves that were always too high for us to see when we're walking, because we're little kids. We'd fly up and we could look at the tops of these shelves. They're very dusty. She doesn't give a lot of detail. She doesn't give a lot of... Every shelf's dusty in a basement. But anyways, she goes, we would fly up there. We'd look at the tops of shelves. Now, that would be a detail that you would want to observe in case anyone ever doubted you, you could go, well, there's a blue marble up on that shelf. I know it because I saw it. And it's impossible for me to see from the ground. So on the one hand, they were building up this ability to prove that this was real, but they also knew if they told anyone, it would stop. She said that not every girl was able to fly to the same level some of them could simply hover a bit. Some of the girls, it took a while for them to even learn how to hover. But eventually they could all do it to some extent. They could all gain this ability. Sally said we used to fly around the basement. The kids would come over and we'd do it. And it only worked in my basement. If we went to any of my girlfriend's basements, it didn't work there. I was the coolest kid in school by default. I had the gravity-defying basement. She said, you know, we did this for quite a few months, but then we ended up moving. We moved to a new house, and she was never able to float again. It truly did only work in that basement. And so what's interesting is I don't, I, I, I'm sure they lived in this house for a period of time. I don't think they just moved into this house for a couple of months. And 
Sally's floating around, then they moved. I'm sure it was a totally normal basement for a long period of time, and then for whatever reason, then this was discovered. This ability was discovered. It's a fascinating story, nonetheless. The obvious thing to think of is there's some sort of gas leak going on. Not like a helium gas leak where it allows you to float. Is that these girls were hallucinating. That would be the skeptical answer. These girls were going down there huffing in that sweet, sweet natural gas and being like, look at me, I'm flying. And really, they're just laid out on the ground, slowly turning blue. It's possible, right? That'd be the skeptical answer. But in the world of the paranormal, something like this... Well, it's funny, because in the world of the paranormal, even this is not normal. The ability to fly, the ability for humans to fly, is not something you see outside of old witches' fables. It's something man's always wanted to do. Generally, though, that includes like flying through the sky and being like a bird and looking for worms to eat. Not flying around a basement, but I would take that. I wouldn't I'm not I am not picky in my zero gravity situations. I 100% would take just floating around in a basement. That'd be pretty dope. So even in the world of the paranormal, this is an outlier. What I thought was interesting was Frank said I remember the first time my mom told me this story. She's telling me that when she was a little girl, she was able to fly around the basement with her friends. And Frank goes, as she was telling me the story, I got the most extreme feeling of deja vu. Let me read you his exact words here. It was, quote, like I was remembering edges of a forgotten dream. I didn't necessarily feel like I had those memories or could do it myself. But just a really weird feeling. Just a really weird feeling that I knew all along my mom could levitate when she was a kid. That's a really cool detail to the story as well, right? It's not just this little child's possible faulty memory, partially gas exposure to natural gas that's causing them to hallucinate. We'll assume, because we're a paranormal podcast, that the phenomenon is real. But then we also have the fact that it was so reality-bending that her own child, who was not alive when any of this took place, when his mom told him about it, he... It's like he knew in the back of his head his mom could fly. He just knew it. And then when she tells him about it years later, he he gets that feeling like it, he had already all, like he had already known that somehow. And this wasn't news to him. Fascinating story. I, I, again, I love looking for those outliers in the world of the paranormal because we come across stuff like that. It's very, you know, I went through the rest of his posting history, talks about normal stuff. That's always nice to verify. You just have these weird little outliers that the stakes are so low. It's just a day in the life of a world that, although it tries to deny any sort of paranormal activity, the world is flooded with it. It's everywhere. Most of the time, we just don't notice it. I find it super fascinating that those girls, they knew that if they had told anyone about this, it would stop. You would have had... I'm going to go down there. My name's Billy Bats, and I'm the local bully. I don't know why you guys told me. I'm going to pull your pigtails and then take me down there. 
and it wouldn't work. Or they tell their mom, you need to stop having your friends come over there, hang out in the basement. If you think you're flying, I don't know what you guys are doing down there. Like any sort of rational person or any sort of outsider coming in, it's basically like throwing a wet blanket on top of a roaring fire. Fascinating. And they knew that intrinsically. They knew that. And then the question is, was the next group of people who moved into that house or the people who live in that house today, is the phenomenon still there? Are people currently floating around the basement? Or like, as you're you're listening to this podcast, as you're floating through your basement, you're like, whoa, I know where this story takes place. My house. Or did you just have to have a group of girls in the right frame of mind that this could happen with? It's a fascinating story. I absolutely love it. Um, I wonder if the phenomenon is still out there. And if it is, again, it's super rare. Even in a world of ghosts and aliens and cryptids and spells, it's super rare for humans to fly. We did that episode a long time ago about the guy who could fly. That's an episode, again, like out of what, 1,012 episodes are on at this point, 1,013. I've already lost count again. We had that episode where that guy was flying around. That was a cool one. I'll put that one in the show notes. Um, Really, really fun one. Denby Jones, get your patch on your eye, get your peg leg ready, and fire up that carpenter copter, maybe take the patch off before we actually start flying around, but Denby Jones, I'm going to toss you the keys of the carpenter copter, we are leaving behind this little girl's basement, take us all the way out to Connecticut. Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. I'm gonna eat my captain's thumb. Dope and stepping on a bridge right now. It's a pirate life for me. You're like bridges. <laughs> I didn't know bridges were traditionally pirate pirate theme. Eh, maybe. We're headed off to a pirate's tale. Denby Jones, when he supported the Patreon, he asked, Hey, can I be in a pirate theme episode? <laughs> we are four months later, he did. He joined like during the summer or something like that. You wanted to have a pirate-themed story. It takes a while to find this stuff. This stuff does not fall in my lap. A yo-ho-ho and a bottle of juice. Walking on a giant moose. Do-do-do-boo. Fix that sail. It's a pirate's life for me. We're in Connecticut. It's 1835. Specifically, we're in the town of Norwich, Connecticut. And we walk into a local jail and sitting there... In jail is a young man named Albert Hicks. And young is the operative word. He's only 15 years old. We see Albert Hicks sitting in jail cell. We're like, hey, Albert, I think we actually covered you last week. Weren't you the guy trying to steal that pirate's treasure? And you got chased off by the Gloucester ghoul? We thought, you know, we were kind of hoping he didn't get chased around by a monster from hell, but we figured maybe that would set your life straight. We were hoping we would never see you again. No offense, dude, but, you know, Paranormal True Crime Podcast is not a good thing to show up on. And Albert Hicks goes, yeah, yeah, the Gloucester ghoul, that sure was crazy, Um, but um, it's a pirate's life for me. Like, I always wanted... To be a pirate. Not me, not me. This is Albert speaking. Albert always wanted to be a pirate. He was always told these stories about pirates' gold and these treasures and these adventures they went on. His quest to find Captain... I think it was Captain Kidd's treasure. That's how he came across the Gloucester Ghoul. That was just, like, a side quest for him. He really wanted to be a pirate. And he found himself 
realizing if you want to be a pirate, you kind of got to start off being a criminal. So Albert Hicks, he had been arrested for theft, and he had this thing where he kept escaping from jail. Then he'd get recaught, thrown back in jail with a heavier sentence. This would go on and on. He'd escape from there, get caught again. He'd have a longer sentence. Till eventually he was put in solitary confinement for a year. And he said at that point he went crazy. And there's a difference between a thief criminal, there's a difference between a criminal that's just trying to make some money and, and an insane hatchet-wielding pirate. Even a normal pirate, right, would be bad enough to run into. But if someone goes, you know what, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I'm insane. I'm not just a regular pirate. I'm a insane pirate. I have mental issues. <laughs> that's the one you got to look out for. When he finally, finally, after all of his escapes and all of his sentences getting longer, when he was finally released, he knew everything about the world of crime. He'd been raised by criminals at this point. They, they've all been in the jail system, and criminals love to tell stories. And he feels, I have all the education I need now to do what I've always wanted to do. I want to be a pirate. So he became a pirate. And he didn't relegate it to yo-ho-hoing on a boat. He was actually also a highwayman. He would just lay in the bushes and wait till some stagecoach came by and rob everybody. And then kill him. He was a he he was a murderer who stole stuff. He wasn't a thief who killed people. By his own accounts, and they could be a little bit exaggerated, but the way that this story turns out, probably not. By his own accounts, he says, "I probably murdered hundreds of people through the course of my career." And he traveled the world. <laughs> he traveled the world and was murdering people. He started off on the East Coast. He made his way all the way west to California. Went down through Mexico, killing people, stealing stuff. He ended up in the South Pacific, killing and robbing all the way there with various pirate crews. And then he's like, "Oh, it's time to get my land legs back. Stick them up." He's robbing people in the South Pacific. This guy was a world traveler and a maniac and a snappy dresser. He was knowing, th th this was really what he would do. He would hook up with a criminal or two. He would have, like, a couple accomplices. When he, when you're on a boat, when you're a pirate, you need a bunch of people to, like, run the ship. But when he's just a highwayman, he'd run with maybe one or two people. And what they would do is they would find people, they would rob them, they would kill them. And then Albert Hicks would spend all of his money on booze, women, and fancy clothes. And once he ran out of money, he would just go rob and murder people again. This was his rhythm. He was not trying to build up a nest egg. He was definitely not trying to leave no buried treasure. He just wanted to live the good life. This goes on. He started when he was 15, when he got arrested for theft. This goes on till he's around 40 years old. And the reason he stops isn't because the law caught up to him. Isn't because he had too close of a call. And he's like, whoa, I mean, like that almost was it for good old Albert. Hanging up my hat. He was very famous for wearing, he wore this thing called a Kossith, cut. he hold, wore this hat called a Kossith hat. <laughs> You're going to have to look it up, it's in the show notes. I know this, I know, a Kossith, it's a Kossith hat. It's basically, it was a wide-brimmed hat that you'd see like military people use when they were especially in the brush. It was basically like a wide-brimmed hat and he would have it pulled down over one eye. It looked mysterious. 
And you go, oh, kind of like a fedora, like a gangster would wear a fedora. Yeah, put a little pin in that. We'll talk about that in a second. Wore that wide brim hat. Time to hang up my hat. The reason why isn't because he got caught or he almost got caught or because he realized that what he was doing was reprehensible. No, he met a good woman. That was it. He met a good woman. They had a kid. And he goes, you know what? If I want to raise this kid right, I can't be in the South Pacific murdering people. I have to be here at home in the most peaceful place on earth, New York City. I'm going to raise my family in New York. And I'm going to have a good kid. I'm going to be a good husband. Raise this kid right. So I guess, see, again, I don't think his morals changed. I think he just realized that you can't murder and raise a kid at the same time. <laughs> He's wistfully looking out the window. He's like, oh, all those people I wish I could murder. Papa, Papa, can we play stuffed animals again? Oh, yeah, come here, little Albert Jr. Let's play. I'll play with you instead. But that doesn't last. <laughs> that wouldn't be the end of the story. That wouldn't be the end of the story. That doesn't last. Eventually, he realizes, like, I do want to raise my family. I want to be right for my son. But to do that, I'm going to need money. So I'm going to try to get an honest job. I'm going to try to get an honest job on a boat. A former pirate like myself, I'm going to try to get an honest job on a boat. Now, if it happens to turn out that I become, I shift into pirate mode during the full moon, then so be it. But I'll try. I'll try my best. Now, his wife was, his wife may know a little bit about his past. But she has no idea that this is about to happen. Her wife and her son, Albert's wife and son, are like, Bye! See you later! As he's headed out the door, he's about to join the crew of the A.E. Johnson, which is a oyster sloop. Super weird. It's a boat specifically chartered. It's not like an oyster-shaped boat. That would be cool. It's a regular sloop. But this one hauled oysters. And it didn't even do the fun part of, like, Getting the oysters out of the ocean is basically a transport vessel of oysters. So Albert shows up on this boat, and he's on the boat with three other men. You have Captain George Burr, and then the two other guys working on the boat is Oliver and Smith Watts. And this is where we go. It's funny, I think at a certain point you may be thinking, oh, is this a true crime story? This guy's kind of, I mean, he did he did go face-to-face with a giant monster in the last episode, but clearly this must just be a true crime story. Jason's just going to tell us about the life and crimes and trial of Albert Hicks. Well, according to Albert, true crime wouldn't be the definition of this story. What he believed is that he was in service to a darker force. Albert honestly believed he was in the service of Satan. He worked for Lucifer, and and he believed that he actually owed Lucifer a debt. Albert joins this crew of three men, and they head out on a standard oyster run. They have no idea they're dealing with someone who doesn't want a second chance, because that's not what Satan would want for Albert. Let me read you this quote Albert Hicks said about Satan. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's one thing to have a bank robber. 
Another one would be like, oh, no, uh, I robbed banks specifically because Satan wanted me to. Let me read you this quote. Quote, he has stood by me all my life, on ship and on shore. Amid the howling storms of the ocean, where every moment the waves threatened to engulf me, he snatched me from their deadly embrace. On the battlefield, in many a hand-to-hand fight, he has seemed to stand by my side, protecting me from danger. And when I have been in the hands of my enemies, and escape has appeared impossible, he has, until now, invariably opened the way for my release. So he's giving the statement at a time that he knows that Satan has left him. We'll get to that in a second, but I wanted to share that part with you. He's telling his eventual captors that he was in service to the Dark Lord. Those are statements that you would hear someone say about God, right? I don't think necessarily be like, and then he sent Jesus down. Jesus was karate chopping those guards. And that's how I escaped from that North Korean prison. But you know what I mean? Like, I didn't let myself wallow in despair because I knew God would save me from this predicament. When those waves are crashing over the boat, I prayed to God and he saved me. Those are the types of statements we hear about God. And here Albert Hicks is talking about Satan. So he's on this boat, the A.E. Johnson. This is the mentality of this man. And these men have no idea who they're with. The A.E. Johnson is going to Virginia to buy these oysters to bring them back to New York. And one night during this journey... Captain George Burke says, okay, guys, I'm going to go sleep in my bed. You guys do whatever happened on boats at night. I don't know. I'm a captain. I sleep all the time when the night shows up like a normal person. You guys, I don't know, move the sails around or swab the deck or something. Oliver Watts also goes to bed. So the only people on the deck of the boat is Albert and Smith Watts. And the thing is, is because this boat is on this oyster run there, it's actually full of money. They're going to go buy these oysters in Virginia and bring them back to New York. So there's a bunch of money to buy oysters. And Albert's like, wait a second, I could work on this boat. Or I can murder everybody and just steal the money. Because that's what I've been doing my entire life. And no one's going to catch me, right? The Dark Lord always has my back. He always has up until now. So why wouldn't he protect me? He says he's standing on the deck. We have this testimony from Albert. He confesses to all this later. He goes, I'm standing on the deck with Smith. And I go, hey, look at that. Look at that off in the distance. You see that? You see that out in the dark? Out in the dark waves? You see something out there? And Smith is like, no, I don't see anything out there. And Albert goes, no, no, no. Look over there. Look far, far out into the distance. And you'll see it. Smith is staring out into the darkness. I don't see anything. What are you pointing at, Albert? As Smith has his back to Albert, Albert picks up a sea axe. It's like just a a hatchet type of tool. But any, any edge tool can be used as a weapon as Smith is looking out into the Black Sea trying to see what Albert is pointing at. Albert brings that sea axe right down on the back of Smith's head. Just smashes his skull open. And Smith immediately collapses onto the ground. But it's such a loud noise on such a calm sea 
the sound of the axe hitting the back of Smith's head and then the sound of Smith's body smashing against the deck, it alerts Oliver, his brother, who's down in the sleeping area of the boat. Oliver comes up the stairs. The way the boat is laid out is, you know, they have like a little staircase that goes into the inner part of the boat. They have like a little cabin, like a little door you can stick your head out of, right? <laughs> a little <laughs> a little door that you walk up and you as you're walking, you know, your head can stick out of it and you can peek to see what that noise was. And Albert's standing there with that sea axe and he hears Oliver walk up the stairs and Oliver sticks his head out of the door to see what that noise was. And as Oliver is craning his neck out to see what all the fuss was about, to see what the loud thumping was on the deck, Albert brings that hatchet down so fast and so strong in one swipe completely decapitates Oliver. His head was perfectly positioned out that Albert could line up his blow and brought it down right on his neck. Albert said, I watched Oliver's head fall off of its body. And this area of the ship is already covered in blood from where he smashed open Smith's skull. He goes, I cut off Oliver's head and I watched and I watched Oliver's head roll on the deck of the ship that's already splattered with his brother's blood. He said that Oliver's body seemed to stumble for a moment and then just slump out of the door. I'm watching Oliver's head kind of roll around on the deck. Smith's still bleeding over here from this horrible head wound I gave him. And now it's time for me to take care of the captain. I'm almost home free. Albert comes downstairs wielding the sea axe. He enters the captain's quarters. But the captain now is standing up, and he's ready to fight. He sees Albert come in with this hatchet, and a fight breaks out. Albert said the room was very, very cramped, especially to have two people in it, both fighting for their lives. Albert knew that if he lost this fight, he was doomed. He said the captain was much bigger than I was, much stronger than I was. And at one point, he got the best of me. He wrapped those big, meaty hands right around my throat and began to strangle the life out of me. I was losing this fight, 100%. This was the end. But before he took my life, I knew I had one more chance. Some could say the devil. The devil was by my side once again. I beat a physically stronger opponent. I took that sea axe and I swung it. I got past his defenses and I watched that axe cleave off half of his face. Captain Burr stumbled back. A hand pressed against a massive open wound in his head. Albert said I looked at the hatchet and there hanging off of it was one of Captain Burr's eyeballs. I had completely just removed half of his face. I finished him off. Now I was the only living member 
of this crew, it was time to really go to work. I started searching the boat. I found the cache. His plan now is to scuttle the ship. He's going to sink it. He goes, I'm just going to drill holes in it and let the water take it to the bottom. I'll get in a little dinghy and I'll just row back to shore, make my way back to New York. I mean, like, easy peasy, right? He walks back up to the deck of the ship and Smith is standing up. Not straight. He doesn't have perfect poise, but he's stumbling around the boat. He's not dead. That wound, as ugly as it looked, didn't kill him. And Smith is stumbling around the boat, and Hicks is like, I gotta finish this dude off. Like, I can't have any witnesses. Plus, I do love murdering in service of the Lord Satan. He walks up to Smith, and he goes, I'm just gonna let the elements take care of you now. If you want to survive, survive underwater. He takes Smith, throws him overboard, and then starts walking back to throw the remains of Oliver and eventually Captain Burr overboard as well. But then he sees that Smith is holding on to the edge of the boat. His fingers are gripping that wood and he's hanging off the side of the boat. And Albert walks over there with that sea axe and chops off Smith's fingers. Smith then plummets into the dark waters below and drowns. Albert takes Oliver's head, throws it overboard, throws the rest of Oliver overboard, goes down, lugs Captain Burr's body up the steps to the edge of the boat, throws that overboard, and then begins drilling holes in the boat. So the boat will sink. There'll be no evidence of any of this stuff, right? They'll just think, boat sank, four people died. If they even knew that, you know, people people weren't keeping W-2s for who was working on boats. Is anyone going to know that Albert Hicks was on board? Well, he's like, I'll just take this little dinghy. I'm out of here. He takes the money. He gets in his little boat. Rows away. All of this for what is the modern equivalent of $8,700. And the classic Albert. <laughs> classic Albert. He then parties his way. He, he, he lands back on land. Yeah, he takes a little boat and he comes back there. But he's a far away from New York. He goes, I'm just going to party my way back up to my family in New York. I'm going to hit up all these bars and all these whorehouses. I'm going to buy some new snazzy clothes. Like, let's live it up Albert style. Even though, even though I did this to make money for my family, I got to spend a little bit on myself. I got I to gotta have a good time. A couple days after all of this happens, the A.E. Johnson, this sloop, is still floating around. It wasn't successfully scuttled. And other boats in the area notice this boat that's adrift, so they go to check it out. And they eventually get the authorities involved because all anyone can tell on this boat is there's a bunch of holes drilled in it. It appears somebody took all the money and where do these fingers come from? Why, why are there just fingers on this boat? I don't know if the rain or the element kind of washed away or got rid of most of the blood, but the, the, the police just found fingers on a boat that had a bunch of holes drilled into it, and they realized that it had been robbed, so they go, a pirate must have gotten this. Let's find him. They have no idea who it could be, though. 
But they do go to shore and they start asking around like, hey, did anything suspicious happen in this area? Eventually, Kid goes, well, that's funny you asked that, Governor. One day, I was standing out on the beach and with me peepers, I saw a little boat pull up and a guy get out and he seemed to have like a bundle with him, maybe like money, maybe like he stole something. So the cops are like, okay, that's the best lead we have. And as they keep asking people in the area, they're like, you know what? It's super weird. Some guy that I'd never seen before came to my pub and spent a bunch of money and was like entertaining all the girls and buying all these drinks. He was a real fancy dresser, right? Not the normal type that comes in here. And it was just this fantastic night. He closed the place down. And cops are like, okay, that's interesting. And they follow a trail of parties. They basically are able to start to track down Albert because he partied so hard in all these different towns leading up to New York. He became a legend. And the legend was this guy could just throw a huge rager. He would show up in town, fancy his dresser, drop a bunch of money, and then leave. And the cops are now on the trail of this guy. At this point, they don't know that this is Albert Hicks, the super notorious pirate who'd been in operation for 25 years. He was just a guy who murdered three people because at this point, you know, they figured out the other people who were on their boat. Eventually, they do catch up with Albert. The authorities come and arrest Albert and he was with his wife and his kid. They had no idea what had happened. They caught Albert and this is when he became the notorious pirate Albert Hicks. All of his stories were laid out for the public. And this is when he talks about he's murdered hundreds of people. He's been on the high seas. He's traveled the world. And not only that, he also knew personally on a first name basis, good old Lucifer. He wasn't just a pirate for money. He liked to murder people. It was a huge trial. It was super sensational at the time. But everyone knew he was guilty. The trial was basically just the show for him to be able to get up and talk about his career doing all these interviews with journalists, P.T. Barnum came out and said, I want to take you on tour with my circus, but obviously you're not going to get out of here. That's why he said Lucifer up until now has always provided me a way out because now he knows that he's doomed. There's no way he's walking away from this. P.T. Barnum says, can I take a wax, like, can I get a wax mold of your face now because they're not going to let me do this after you die, your property of the state. Let me get a wax mold of your face and I'm going to put you on tour. People are going to come out to see the notorious Albert Hicks. And Albert Hicks goes, yeah, sure, I will let you take this this mask of me on one condition. You need to buy me a nice suit that I can wear on the day of my hanging. P.T. Barnum's like, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good deal. And Albert gave him the specifications of the type of suit he wanted. And yeah, sure enough, he was... Found guilty. It took the jury six minutes to deliberate. <laughs> they didn't even leave the room. They're like, yeah, he's totally guilty. July 13th, 1860. Friday the 13th. And there's a lot of people who say, a lot of historians who say, the execution of Albert Hicks is one of the main causes of why Friday the 13th is considered cursed. Like, not everyone agrees, but there's a lot of historians who say we don't see a lot of talk about Friday the 13th being a bad day before. Albert Hicks execution, but we see a ton of it afterwards. So this may have been the main reason why we still associate that day with death and bad luck. The death of Albert Hicks, his public hanging, he was the last person to be publicly hanged in New York. It was such an event 
New York Harbor was full of boats. People couldn't, there wasn't enough seats, obviously, to sit there to watch them hanging. So people showed up in their boats, their sloops probably, with binoculars, telescopes, 10,000 people watched the hanging just by boat. That's not including everyone else who could somehow get a view. There was 10,000 people in the harbor to watch Albert Hicks get hanged. And he walks up to the gallows wearing an electric blue suit and a large, wide-brimmed hat pulled down over one eye. Quite, quite the scene, right? You're there to watch this notorious murderer get executed, and he's getting executed, but it's on his terms, right? He's wearing this fancy suit. He walks up. They put the noose around his neck, and his final words were, Hang me quick. Make haste. His wax dummy that was part of the P.T. Barnum show was viewed by millions of people. People came out to see because it was a real-life cast of his face. That was as close as most people would ever get to this type of villain. And he was, I guess I probably should have described him a little bit more early on, but he was a very good-looking guy. He was a very handsome, broad-shouldered man who dressed well. Even when he was committing these despicable acts, he was dressed incredibly well. He had the fedora-esque hat. He would wear suits. He would wear these nice clothes. He'd wear these suits. He'd had his wide-brimmed hat, kind of like a fedora-type hat. And because so many people saw his fashion choices at the execution, and now millions more are seeing this wax dummy, this very good-looking man dressed up really nice, because of his fashion choices, there's a lot of belief that this is the reason why the 1930s gangsters dressed the way they did. It was based on Albert Hicks. Because he, the way he dressed, the snazzy way he dressed with the, the uh, big hat and the nice clothes and the long coat. He'd wear a coat with long tails. People said that this went from being a real person to start appearing in uh, fiction about bad guys, and they would always be dressed really nice with these long coats and these white hats, and then you would have the criminals emulate what they saw in fiction. And now, that is the Chicago-era gangster. They were basing it on Albert Hicks. Fascinating story. It's interesting, we can look at that, you go, well, maybe they're wearing trench coats because they could easily hide a large gun under the coat. That's why a gangster wears a trench coat. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. But when we look at it as a total picture, it does look like the style that we see in gangsters, you know, a hundred years after Albert Hicks, a lot of it was inspired by the snazzy dressing of this madman murdering pirate. That is the story of Albert Hicks, a man, a murderous man, And really, that's all he ever wanted to be. A young boy who wanted to sail the high seas, not for adventure, not for fame, but for violence. He wanted to be a madman. He wanted to get his money and then blow it as quickly as he could so he'd have an excuse to go out and get more. He truly was a psychopath. And if the ruler of hell is looking for anyone anyone to stand by his side he definitely wants to find lunatics like the notorious pirate albert hicks 
deadrabbitradio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.